Good morning again, everybody. Um, again, as Brian is out of town, I'm, I am preaching today. And so this is something that Travis and I will do occasionally, even though we aren't teaching elders, um, we'll still uh, preach from time to time. So from my own perspective, it's truly a blessing to be able to intensely uh, study a passage of scripture like I've done the last few days in, in order to be able to preach from it. I'm always amazed by what I learn, even from passages that I thought I knew well. And it also truly makes me appreciate what Brian does each and every week for us. The amount of work that goes into preparing one of these sermons um, is something that I didn't fully appreciate until I've done this a few times. And Brian does this every week, and it's always a new sermon. And I always contrast this with what I do for my job. So I'm a professor at K-State, but when I lecture, I can often reuse my lectures from the previous year. But Brian doesn't do this. It's a new, it's a new sermon each and every week. So fortunately for us today, I'm not going to be lecturing on biochemistry. Instead, we'll be continuing our, our series, on this, our Summer Psalm series. And today we're going to uh, uh, look at and read from Psalm 40. So I encourage you to find the psalm um, in your Bibles, and we'll read uh, from it together. While you're finding your place, I just thought I'd give you an overview of it. So the psalm, it might be very well known to you. It describes how the psalmist, in this case David, was stuck in a pit and bogged down by mud, but was rescued by God. Sorry. Something's happening with my presentation here. I knew I should have printed it out. <laughs> All right, there we go. So as you read along with your Bibles, you, you'll notice that Psalm 40 has three clear sections. So verses 1 through 3, the first section, are a joyful testimony of God's deliverance. I'm also sure that many of you will, many of you will know that it's these three verses that form much of the Psalm 40 by you too, which might or might not be the reason I to preach on the Psalm. Unlike you two, however, we are going to consider the entire psalm because these other two sections that they don't sing about strongly testify to the steadfast love of our God despite our sinfulness. So as we'll see, the second section, which is verses 4 through 10, are a present reflection on God's goodness. And then the last seven verses, verses 11 through 17, are a prayer for future deliverance. So again, one final comment before we get into the text. Verses 13 through 17 are almost the same as Psalm 70. Um, so I don't know if we've actually preached on Psalm 70 for our summer psalm series, but as I was preparing this, it occurred to me that maybe I can reuse some of uh, this year's notes for next year if I, if I pick Psalm 70 just like I do for biochemistry. Um, but anyway, back to, uh, back to Psalm 40. So there's debate on whether this psalm represents two psalms that were actually joined together by later editors. Though most commentators would probably agree on the fact that Psalm 70 was probably split off from Psalm, 7, split off from psalm 40 to be used for specific types of worship in the temple. All right, so let us read Psalm 40 from God's Word. To the choir master, a, a psalm of David. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog. 
and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord, my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but you have given me an open ear. Then I said, Behold, I have come, and the scroll of the book it is written of me. I desire to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who desire my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, aha, aha. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation stay continually great as the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. The grass withers, the flower, the flower fades. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this beautiful psalm written so long ago. We thank you for the way that it has ministered to your people for centuries and that its words are still relevant today. We thank you, Father, for the way it conveys David's confidence in your provision through repeated times of difficulty and despite our sinful nature. We ask that you'll open our hearts and our minds to these words, that even if they are familiar, you will invoke new insights and understanding of your will for our lives. We pray these things in your holy name. Amen. So the first section of the psalm has the psalmist looking back in time to when he was in trouble, when he was, as we read in verse 2, in a pit of destruction or a miry bog. Now, as far as we know, David never actually encountered a situation like this. Even though he lived through many dangerous events in his life, the Bible hasn't actually recorded a time when he was trapped in mud and mire. So instead, some commentators have speculated that when he refers to the pit of destruction, he is referring to Sheol, which was the Old Testament way of referring to the grave or the abode of the dead. So we read this in Psalm 30, where David writes, O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You have restored me to life from among those who go down to the pits. So we see this parallelism between the pits and this place of the dead. So commentators have suggested that maybe David is describing a time in his life when he was close to death, possibly due to illness or maybe more likely due to the many other dangerous times in his life of which we know there were many. Still, other commentators have, have 
thought that maybe David could be referring to the pit caused by the sin in all of our lives. As we'll talk about later on in the psalm, David knew all too well the pernicious nature of sin, of how it has a way of sucking us down by multiplying and getting us trapped in mud. So we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit later on. So how did, Davis how did David respond to this time of trouble, um, even if we don't know exactly what it was? So unlike many of us in difficulty, we read in verse 1 that David waited patiently for the Lord. In his reflections on this verse, Tim Keller notes that the Hebrew literally says, waited, waited. And in Hebrew, this double term, this, like, this repetition conveys intensification or emphasis. So we really get the idea here that David is waiting utmost patiently, and it gives us a sense of his confidence in the Lord's provision. He has the utmost trust in the Lord that he will rescue David, which allows him to wait so patiently. And this, this trust in the Lord is, is, um, pays off for David. As he describes, he is rescued from this pit, and his feet are set upon a rock, upon solid ground, so that his way is secure. And David responds to this salvation with a new song, a song of praise to our God. And it's David's anticipation that as God's rescue becomes known through the song, that many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. So this is a seemingly contradictory term. How can you put your trust in someone you fear? Um, and as commentators have pointed out, as we know from other places in the scripture that we'll look at, this isn't fear in the sense of dread or terror, but rather of reverence and awe, and thus a des desire to obey God's will. So I think C.S. Lewis does a great job of communicating these somewhat contradictory ideas of fear and goodness in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when Mr. and Mrs. Beaver describe Aslan, the Christ figure in that story, Susan Pevensey. So this is from, from that book. So this is Susan talking. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And then elsewhere, so again we see this, you know, so as C.S. Lewis explains here, there's this, con this, you know, he explains so well how you can fear someone but also trust in them. And this importance of fearing our God and how this leads to our salvation is expressed elsewhere in many other places in the Bible. So in Proverbs 19.23 we read, the fear of the Lord leads to life and whoever has it rests satisfied. And elsewhere in Psalms, in Psalm 52.6 we read, the righteous shall see and fear. So what David's trying to convey here and he understands this, is that the knowledge of what God has done, combined with reverence and awe, this fear of, of God, will lead many to place their confidence in his saving power. So that's the end of the first section. And if it ends describing how people will put their trust in the Lord after seeing and fearing, the second section begins by describing what will happen to those who trust in the Lord. So the second section, as I said before, is a present reflection by the psalmist as he considers how trusting in the Lord has changed him. 
and it begins with this beautiful beatitude. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who have gone astray after a lie. So the word proud in the Hebrew is actually a rare Hebrew word that refers to Egypt, probably to their false gods. Um, and then again, some of your translations might have the, this latter phrase, to those who have gone astray after a lie, translated as to those who turn aside to false gods. So both portions kind of give this idea, this contrast between trusting in the Lord and trusting in false gods. Uh, and we, it's just this further reminder of David's confidence um, in, his, in the Lord's provision and that he doesn't need to rely on other sources of rescue. Um, he doesn't rely on these false gods or other nations to come and rescue him. The section continues with David describing his response to, this, to um, the saving graces of God. And we'll see three, three responses in the following verses. Specifically, we'll see first that he praises God, second, he proclaims this work of salvation to others, and third, he desires to obey God. So we can see the praise in verse 5 where he says, You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare to you. And this praise is echoed later on in the Psalms, later on the Psalm, for instance, in, verses, in verse 16. I want to spend more time, though, on the other two responses, um, the way he proclaims this work of salvation and his desire to obey God. So verse 5 continues with the second response, his desire to tell others about how you are saved by his God. And it, say, it says, I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. So here David doesn't seem to be bothered by the shyness or apathy that so often plagues us when we, as we tell others about our salvation. We get the sense that his good news is bursting forth from him, that he just cannot help to tell others about it. We see his overwhelming desire to proclaim God's faithfulness and salvation in verses 9 and 10 with phrases like, I have not restrained my lips, I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart, and I have not concealed your steadfast love and faithfulness. So contrast David's enthusiasm with the reluctance that many of us have about telling our family, friends, and co-workers about the great hope that we have. So it's our natural inclination to tell people about the things we are excited about. So for the last few weeks, Christine has been a very good sport hearing me go on and on about the World Cup, particularly the exploits of England's team. And after England beat Colombian penalties earlier this week, and you need to be familiar with English soccer history to really appreciate this, I couldn't tell her, I couldn't wait to tell her all about, you know, this incredible game and how England has gone through. And unfortunately for Christine, England is still in the World Cup. It's been an amazing tournament. So there's at least another week of soccer uh, to look forward to. Right, but even more than soccer, I mean, even more than something that you're excited about, what if you knew that it was something that would save people? If I discovered the cure for cancer, would I keep quiet about it? Particularly if I knew that my next door neighbor was dying from cancer. Right, so how much more so should we be telling our unbelieving friends and family about the one thing that, will not just, that won't save their bodies, but will save their eternal souls? So we can draw encouragement from David and his enthusiasm for spreading the gospel. 
Right, so in addition to responding with praise and by spreading the good news of his gospel, David also responds with obedience to the will of God. We see this in verse 6, which is complicated, so I'm going to go through it carefully. So verse 6 has this phrase, you've given me an open ear. So this is an idiomatic phrase, and it's been interpreted differently by different commentators. So some have taken this verse to refer to the ceremony under Mosaic law, where if a slave wanted to stay with his master after his six-year term of slavery was completed, then his ear would be pierced, indicating that, that he was a servant for life. So this is kind of information I wish I had known about 20 years ago when I got my ears pierced. Um, fortunately, that grew out. Um, so an alternate and probably more accepted view of this verse is derived from the literal Hebrew translation, which says, ears you have dug for me, which would mean ears that have been like opened up and dug out to hear and obey. So Isaiah 55, 51.5 states this idea quite nicely when it says, the Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. Regardless of which interpretation uh, you want to go with, I think both, you know, both ways of, of reading that verse uh, result in the same meaning, that God has changed David's heart so that he wants to obey, whether this is through him being an obedient slave or through somebody who hears better and then obeys. And this idea is emphasized by verse 8. So we see in, in that verse, I desire to do your will, O my God, your laws within my heart, further showing again how after being saved by God, David is a changed man, that he really desires to, uh, to obey God. So the rest of, of verse 6 has, has another complicated phrase, um, this, which says, sacrifice and offering you have not required, and this is followed up um, a verse later in verse Verse 8, burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. So these are somewhat complicated verses to think about, um, particularly if we think about when David was writing them, because he wasn't overturning Mosaic law at that time. And as I'm sure you are, are familiar with, Mosaic law had all these requirements for sacrifices, particularly to atone for sin. So just to be clear, David wasn't refuting that sacrificial system then. Instead, he was likely using hyperbole or making a, an exaggerated statement to make an, impo an important point, that sacrifices in and of themselves have no value. If you don't obey God from the heart, then the sacrifices are useless. Now, obviously, these verses gain you meaning with Christ's sacrifice on the cross, and this is something that we'll look at later on um, towards the end of the sermon. So just to summarize the this, this second section, uh, we can see three specific changes in David's life and his attitude. We can see how he praises God. We can see how he desires to spread the good news of his salvation. And also we can see how he has this heartfelt change so that he obeys from his, from, from, from his heart. And these are, are, you know, I encourage you to reflect on, on David's response and, and um, how you've responded to God's salvation in your life. Um, are you pursuing these like changes in attitude that we see David so strongly um, going after? 
All right, so the final section of Psalm 40 is a prayer for deliverance from a present crisis that David is experiencing. So we see this in verse 13 where he writes, Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. So again, David is in trouble. This time it's trouble that he admits to having brought upon himself due to his sin. This is evidence in verse 12 where he writes, My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Even though he was a man after God's own heart, David certainly wasn't a stranger to sin. The story of his adulterous affair with Bathsheba, followed by him arranging for the death of her husband on the battlefield, is very well known. And it just demonstrates so well and so perfectly how one sin can multiply and lead to so many other sins. And, and I think it's this perfect analogy with how, you know, when you get stuck in, 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 a, in mud or in a bog, how when you struggle more and more, you just get sucked further down. And even though he repented of his sin, and we read, we read of this in Psalm 51, uh, these actions of David continued to haunt him throughout his life. And a great example of this is the coup by his son Absalom many years later, which forced David into temporary exile and resulted in, in the brief civil war. So how does David respond to this present trouble of his? So instead of being despondent and thinking, you know, God's already saved me once, he's not going to save me again, you know, I can't keep going to him for help, he does the exact opposite. He continues to ask the Lord for help. He says, be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help for me. And this, we see this request again in verses 14 and 15, where he asks for the tables to be turned on his enemies. We see this beautiful threefold repetition of lines that start with, let those be. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, aha, aha. So David is confident in this request. We can see this how he phrases verse 11 with anticipation of God rescuing him yet again. He says, as for me, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. And again, it's reflected in the, the final verse of the psalm where he acknowledges his need and his poverty, but he knows that despite this, the Lord has thought for him. So how can we respond like David to a life that is full of repeated difficulty? Like David, our lives are full of pits. And again, these are often probably not literal pits of mud. These are certainly times of fear and desperation. Often these are events beyond our control, times of serious illness or financial difficulty, and these are just reflections of the fact that we live in a broken and sinful world. But certainly, many of these pits are due to our own making, and like David, due to our own sin. How can we be confident, like David, that God will pull us out of the mud, even when we are so often the ones who so, seeming, who so seemingly willingly jump in this pit? Um, so I'm going to argue that verses 6 through 8 of this psalm provide some insight into this. So as you might have 
And third, these verses foreshadow Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And indeed, Hebrews 10 cites these verses as the writer of Hebrews contrasts the sacrifices of the Old Testament with Christ's sacrifice on the cross. So this is what is in Hebrews 10. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And the writer of Hebrews then expands upon this, explaining how these verses foreshadow um, Christ's uh, sacrifice on the cross. So there are some obvious differences right, in, these, in these texts. Hebrews uses the Greek Old Testament translation of Psalm 40 rather than the original Hebrew uh, of Psalm 40. So that's why you can see um, the text that, or the phrase that says, my, my ears you have dug for me are now replaced by a body you have prepared for me. So here we're going from just part of a body to the whole body. And commentators really don't think that this changes the meaning of what, we, of what we're going to be talking about in that Psalm 40 foreshadows, again, how Jesus will offer up his body as the ultimate and final sacrifice for our sins. So therefore, Psalm 40 describes how Christ's death on the cross therefore atones not only for all our sins in the past, but also for all the sins that we'll commit for the rest of our lives. So in essence, Christ has already pulled us out of the pits, even for the times in the future when we will jump into it. So we can, therefore, we can therefore, perhaps even more than David, be confident in the saving power of our God because we know what Christ has done for us on the cross. All right, let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that because of your death on the cross and your resurrection, we've been saved from the pit of destruction. Help us to live our lives as David did, confident in salvation through you. Give us patience as we wait for you to act. Give us confidence to trust in you and not to turn to false gods. We thank you that even though we are poor and needy, made wretched by sin, you have thought for us and that you are still and always will be our help and deliverer. Amen.